questions we're going to ask this passage and hear how God answers these questions. The first is, what's God's beef with your sex life? Like, why all the talk in the Bible about it? Why do Christians seem to fixate on other people's sex lives and sexuality? That's an important question we should ask at the, at the start. What's God's beef with our sex lives? Second, what's a wise way to face sexual temptation? And last, what's God's heart towards sexual fools? So what's his beef? What's a wise way to face this stuff? And what's his heart towards sexual fools? Now, two things to set this up first. This is Solomon. He's writing these early chapters of Proverbs. King Solomon the epitome of wisdom, one of the wise, I mean, even historically one of the wisest men to ever live. You know, Solomon was the son of King David, also a wise king, a man after God's own heart, but also a sexual fool. It's important, it changes the way you're about to hear the words I'm going to read to you when you remember that these words were written by the little boy of a dad who ruined his kingdom, his marriage, his family, and his son's through his sexual foolishness. So Solomon is not, again, just kind of pontificating like a professor. Solomon is going to share with you what he's lived for decades. When he warns us about some of the stuff, it's because he's tasted the bitterness of what results trickle down from his dad. So this is personal to Solomon, not just information. The second thing is this. Solomon is the king, and he's writing to these kind of adolescent, post-pubescent boys, probably late middle school, early high school boys in the royal court who are being trained, prepared, educated to rule in the royal family, to rule and govern like wise kings. And so because it's King Solomon talking to a room full of boys, it's no surprise that when he's warning these boys, he's warning them against the adulterous woman or the temptress. He's not warning them against women. You'll never find Proverbs throw women under the bus or beautiful women or pretty women. He's telling these boys the seductive, the foolish, the adulterous woman. And if Solomon was training the women in the royal court, guess what? He would have been warning you against the flirtatious guys, the flirts in the room, or the easy guys. And so uh, feel free, you're authorized to flip it. If you're a girl, you're authorized to flip it. Uh, Instead of the adulterous woman, think of it of the flirtatious guy or the adulterous guy, um, just the same. With that out of the way, that this is personal to Solomon, and that Solomon is not talking about the danger of women or men, but the danger of seductive women and men, let's read this, Proverbs 7. He writes to these boys, these men, my son, keep my words, store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you'll live. Guard my teachings. Keep them as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. Say to insight, you're family. They will keep you from the adulterous woman or the flirtatious guy, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked through the lattice and I saw among the simple... I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner. He was walking along in the direction of her house. 
at twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now she's in the street, then she's in the squares. At every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and she kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, Today, basically, I've been to church. I fulfilled my vows. I've had, I, have, I have food for my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I've looked for you and I found you. That's kind of the ancient equivalent of I want you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband, he's out of town. He's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money. He won't be home until the next full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray and seduced him with her smooth talk. And all at once he followed her, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways. Daughters, don't let your heart turn towards his ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims that she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Let's pray. Jesus, it's complicated to read these things. It'd be one thing if we'd never lived a day of our life and we were getting like the orientation to human life and this was like the, now as you go out there into the world to live your life, remember these things, but we've already lived our lives. It's a lot of water under the bridge. It's a lot of horses already out of the stable, a lot of damage done to us from other people's sexual foolishness and by us. So it's hard to hear these words when they implicate us. Oh, would you be a father to us? Would you be kind? Would you pull us near? I know some brothers and sisters in here, just there's so much shame right now. This is triggering. They can't, they don't even think they can come to you or listen to this stuff. Overcome that now. Let them draw near to you and hear your voice. Hear that you are an ally of sexual strugglers and a coach of those who want to change. Hear these and do these things for your sake and ours, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So really that first question that I wanted us to talk about is, what is the Bible's beef with sex? Um, you, might, you might be a person or you might have a bunch of friends in your friend group or maybe a brother or sister who's always asking that, like, what is Christian's deal? Like, why are y'all so concerned with everybody else's private lives and what they're doing? If it's not bothering anybody, what's the big deal? What's the big deal what other people do? in their bedrooms. Now, it's first important to admit that God does talk a lot about sex, right? I mean, the, it's one of those things in the Bible that's literally on like page two and the next to last page. So it's there, they're, they're onto something. It's not a dumb question and people aren't crazy to ask a question like that of why is this such a big deal, particularly when it comes to the Bible's views of sex or sexuality or sex outside of marriage or anything like that. If you didn't grow up familiar with the Bible, it makes all the sense in the world that's a question on your mind. 
And even if you did grow up in church, but it was a toxic church that all they did was moralism, like every message was, don't do this stuff, do this, do better. Then you might just have never picked up all the times when God has actually told us, this is what sex is and this is what it's for. Um, and so if you didn't get that memo, you wouldn't, even, you wouldn't know what he's told us in scripture, that there's a direct, deep connection between Jesus and your sexuality. Deep. If you didn't get the memo, it sounds like gaming and Fortnite and the gospel. You're like, what's the connection between virtual reality and gaming and Jesus? I don't get it. You'll feel that way. This is the same way about sexuality. What God is doing, though, in, in Scripture when he repeatedly talks about this powerful area of our lives, have you, you realized that by this point in your life, right? Your sexuality is deeply felt, animating of our bodies and our minds and our emotions, right? It doesn't ask you permission for anything. You just feel it. Powerful, particularly at this age. Um, so what is God doing with all this talk about it. What he's doing is something similar to what he did in the early chapters of Genesis. So uh, what he did in, in those chapters is uh, his people had been, he had just emancipated all of the Israelites out of 400 years of chattel slavery in Egypt. You're the little boy born to mom and dad, guess what? You're a slave too. You have kids, guess what? They're slaves too. For like eight or nine generations, you don't even know who's at the top of the family tree, who is the first slave in your family. And God has just emancipated his entire people from the strongest country on earth at the time, Egypt. And as God journeys with his people through the wilderness to the promised land, do you remember what he's doing? He's entering into this series of conversations with his people. We know it as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And he's, he's reframing all these lies that Pharaoh and Egyptian culture had told them about who they were. He's saying, look, for, for, for nine generations, you've been hearing the narrative that you're property. You're not. You're, you're, you're like God. I put my image on you. You're not pharaohs, you're mine. You're not beneath the animals. You're at the pinnacle of creation. You don't live on someone else's turf. The earth is yours. I made it for you to live with y'all for he here forever. So he's reframing all these lies that they had just, that had gotten into their bloodstream. They're, they're just baked in by this point. No one even asked, am I pharaohs? It was just assumed. God does the same thing with each generation. It's not just in 2020. Guess what? The 1800s had warped views of sexuality too. So did the 1300s. So did 5000 BC. <laughs> so what God is doing is similarly reframing and putting things right in their back place with us. It's not that he's fixated on this part of your life, it's that this is a uniquely warped and, and deceived area of our lives. And so the deeper the deception, the more he's going to talk to us to reframe it, to put it right back, right side up. And if you listen to him, he's going to tell you something like this. Modernism lied to your mom and your dad the baby boom generation. Culture told your parents' generation and my parents' generation, sex is God. Sexual revolution. It, it, it's, it's, it, every, it's for everybody. It's God. It's nirvana. It's everything you could ever dream it to be. No rules, just right. And he's going to say to your older brothers, your older sisters, maybe some of your parents who are younger, postmodernism lied to you when it said that your sexuality is your identity. Just made that up. 
They lie to you. It's not true. Then he would say to us, um, secularism has told you, is teaching you, is whispering to you, and now it's in my bloodstream and yours, that sex is recreation. It's not that big of a deal. It's having really fun recreation, but it's just, re it's like kind of an extracurricular thing, no strings attached. It's not that big a deal. You're kind of stupid if you expect it to be a big deal. Just enjoy it when you have an opportunity to, and then move on. And God is coming to us very patiently, and he's saying, it's lies. It's lies. That's not who you are. It's not how I made the world. It's not what sex is. So in short, what scripture will tell you, what God will tell you as he corrects the record, just piece by piece, little by little, corrects the record of, of what your sexuality is, what sex is for, this is the essence of what he tells you. Ray Ortland, who I've been quoting a lot, he says most everything better than me. So why mess it up and try to say it better than him? He said, romance, which you can, you can kind of intersperse with sex or sexuality, it's not an evolution-generated mechanism for the survival of the human species. Sex, romance, sexuality came from God. It reveals, it reveals God. Ultimate reality is not cold, dark, blank space out there going on forever with no meaning, message, or emotion. Ultimate reality is romance. God loves us, his people, not with a chilly indifference, but with hot passion. The gospel reveals that that is who God is. This is why God talks so much about sex. This is, sex and your sexuality is a signpost, it's a pointer, a really great pointer, right? But it's a pointer to a, to a much deeper, transcendent, exhilarating reality. What's that greater reality that he says it points to? The union and exhilaration that a husband and a wife feel in that moment together in sex, united as one, is the closest human beings will ever physiologically or emotionally or spiritually experience the oneness that you have with God. A mutual vulnerability, total nakedness, totally being known and seen and accepted. Not seen and pushed away, not seen and their stomach turns, but seen and drawn in. United together as one as on the same page as two human beings made in God's image can possibly get. That is God's marker, his signpost, his whisper to say, this is just the tortilla chips. It's just the appetizer. Boy, you wait and see what it's going to be like when you experience this in fullness. That's what it points to. Now, listen, if you don't hear if you're not listening to God tell you what your sexuality, what sex is for, what romance is for, um, why it's to be embraced, how it's to be used, then you might know the right answers. You might have grown up in the church. You might be able to sit in a community group and answer the right way. Oh, yeah, Ephesians 5, sex points to Jesus and the church. I get it. But your heart is throwing shade at God and the Bible's view of sex and sexuality. Either at a broad scope, you're like, I just, I mean, this seems like too much. Like, I just don't understand what the big deal is. It seems like a bit much. Who is it hurting? I get, God, I get your point about actual sex, but 
hooking up all the other stuff, come on, like, why is that so bad? Who's harmed by that? That's what I mean by your heart throwing shade at God, because your heart's not listening to him. And that's what happens if we're not listening to him as, as we journey towards this greater freedom. We'll be prone to tear down the fences that he's put up around sex. G.K. Chesterton is a guy that we quote a lot. He's an old British um, author, professor. Um, and he said, I- I'm going to paraphrase this, but he basically said there's a, there's a um, propensity for modern people to come up on a fence and say with disdain, why the heck's this fence here? Tear it down. And he said, basically, the principle here that Chesterton gives us is never tear down a fence until you understood why it was built. Human beings build fences for a reason. They're expensive. It's a lot of work, right? I mean, maybe one of the reasons there's a fence there is because a lot of people have gotten hit by cars at this intersection, so they built a fence so people couldn't cross there. Maybe, there's, uh, maybe a lot of people drowned at that section of the river. They didn't want people to go down by the water anymore. Maybe there's an opening to a cave or a sinkhole. I don't know. But the fact that there's a fence there should give us pause to say, huh, why did someone spend all this money and go to all this effort to put a fence here? What are they trying to protect me from? Or what's on the other side? Is there like a dog on the other side of this thing? Are we running out of here in a minute? Chesterton said, never tear down a fence until you know why it was there in the first place. Hearts that are prone to fear God and listen to the Lord are prone to to reach a fence and to say, Father, why is this fence here? And you should be curious. You should ask, Father, like, why, why is that not okay? Like, I don't understand. We should be able to be in a community where you're allowed to ask those questions, right? Shouldn't be taboo questions here. Um, but a heart that's, that's prone to tune God out because you're throwing shade at him and him as he reframes sex and sexuality reaches these fences and says, this is stupid, there's no danger here. And on we parade ourselves into sexual foolishness. And oftentimes, isn't it only long after the fact that we find out why that fence was built? As we're bleeding or other people are suffering the consequences of that. Um, Here's another reason why this stuff is so important. In uh, in In the world that God made, He made everything, and then he gave everything a particular place. He made the sky, and that was the place where the sun was going to be. He made the ocean, and that was the place the fish were going to be. He made the land, and that's the place you and me and the animals are going to be. Everything has a place, and when it leaves that home, when it floods out over those boundaries and leaves its God-designed banks or boundaries or limits, it brings chaos. The ocean kind of kept inside the shore is a good thing, but when a hurricane comes and a storm surge and the ocean's in your living room, it's a bad thing, right? Fire in your fireplace is a great thing. Fire in your living room is a catastrophic thing. Sex inside of the fence that God put around it, which is covenant, which is a man and a woman who promise the way God promised to you, never leaving. I don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if going to be richer or poorer, sicker or healthier. I don't know if we're going to have a great marriage or we're going to have every single day as the fight of our lives just to do the basics of loving each other. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm going to be for you tomorrow and I'm going to be with you tomorrow. And God says, that's good because it's safe. This university, I don't know who, but they had an urban design program and they recently released these findings from the study that they did. It's fascinating. 
these students designed two playgrounds. They actually built these things. The playgrounds themselves were identical, but one was built out in the schoolyard and had no fence, and the other was built on another part of the property, and it had a, like a little fence around it. And then they would sit out there every day, and they would just observe the little kids as they played. You know what happened? They observed that in the, in the playground that did not have a fence, the kids would get up on the slides and stuff and play around, but whenever they weren't on the equipment, they would cluster right around the teacher. Like, if this is the teacher, they just sit in a big bundle right around her. The kids who were in the playground that had a fence around it, they said they never, like, they didn't even know the teacher was there. They were just running around completely just uh, in the moment in the playground, thinking about nothing except exploring every square inch of that place. The hypothesis that they had for why the fence freed the children to use the whole space, explore it, have fun, is that these kids were always worried, is one of my friends going to run away into traffic? Is someone going to come and get us? They were overwhelmed and daunted by the lack of structure, the lack of boundaries, and these kids were secured by it, felt safe. It's the same with marriage. The place for sex, for sexuality, for sexual expression, for nakedness. This is fascinating. I didn't think about this till today. It blows my mind how much God talks about sex outside of marriage and how little he talks about sex inside of marriage in terms of rules, in terms of what don't do. Lots of ink spilled over this, almost no spilled over this. I think it's the, it's the playground principle. He says, you're safe here. And you say, well, Father, what are the do's and the don'ts? And he's like, there aren't. Love her. Love him. Have fun. Explore. Spend the next 30 years, you know, exploring every square inch of this thing. There are no rules. Be fruitful and multiply, I guess. I mean, enjoy yourselves, I guess. Ha just, just swim in the depths of, of love for each other. Yeah, I guess that. That's the rules. You won't find something in the Bible other than 1 Corinthians 7 that says, make sure you're having sex. You won't find any other rules in the Bible that prescribe how a husband and a wife are to relate to each other, except make sure you are a lot. I find that beautiful. That shows you the heart of God. He's not a prude. He's not stingy. He's not a killjoy. He's protecting you from getting smashed under the train of a very powerful, very beautiful, very strong thing that he made called sex. Um, look, here's the last thing I'll say here um, before we really push on. The danger here is uh, what da a guy named David Atkinson, um, a theologian, said. He says, when we transcend these boundaries, when we tear down the fence because we think it's stupid or we don't understand why it's there, this is so restrictive and Puritan, like, why can't I just do what I want to do if there's two consenting people and we tear that down? He says this. This is the danger. To say physically, I'm giving myself to you while emotionally and spiritually I'm holding back from covenanted commitment, which means I will not tell you I'll never leave you, I'll always be here for you, I'll always love you, is in fact to live a lie. It's like two actors on a stage and you're living a living mockery of the real thing. You're, you're choosing to live in the cartoon version of human intimacy. Um, it's a split in the personality which is ultimately stressful and destructive, and that's gentle. Because if you read Proverbs 6, which I didn't read tonight, but if you go back and read the end of Proverbs 6, God is a little bit more graphic than David Atkinson on, um, on what that brings. 
But friends, if you listen, you'll hear God show you beautiful and brilliant things about sex. I love how God just levels with us. There's no beating around the bush. God is not the father of the weird, sheltered, coddled kids who's like, we don't talk about that in this house. Young lady, watch your mouth. Or my daughter would never do that. Gosh, he's the savvy dad who's like, you come in at a certain time and just, he can tell. He's like, hey, where you been? And you're like, how'd you know I was there? Um, he gets it. I find this really encouraging. He gets you. He gets you. He's not, uh, he doesn't have to be informed that you're at your hormonal peak and it's really, really, really hard to hear this stuff right now. He made you to peak in your early 20s. Um, he's not surprised that the fight is real, that the struggle is real, that you feel defeated and demoralized. He's not, he's not out of, uh, I mean, he's, he's been informed that you and I have failed deeply. He knows that. And he's just shooting straight with us, saying it like it is. He's loving it. He's realistic. This isn't pie in the sky. This is like, man, he's getting real. Can you clean it up for us, for our innocent ears? I love that about him. So do you want to hear him say a few practical things about how to live wisely with our sexuality? Good. Yeah. We've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of work to get to the point where we can say, okay, he's not a prude, but we need to be careful. This is a a really big piece of our lives. What are the whispers? When we say sexual temptation, what do I mean? Um, Lauren Winter here, we'll give her the mic. She says, this is how sin works. It whispers to us about the goodness of something not good, persuading us. Did you catch that in Proverbs? Seductive speech, persuasive speech, sugar-coated. It whispers to us of the goodness of something that's not good, and it makes distortions feel good. It tells us we'd be better off with pleasure in hell than holiness in heaven. That's uh, the danger of these things, and it's riddled throughout the back half of your sheet, how this metaphorical woman talks to this metaphorical man. Persuasion and all these things. I don't even know when this was. I think it was when y'all were like between five and eight, like 2005 to seven, the Iraq war. You remember um, in 2003, the Americans went in and we like, won the Iraq war, I guess, in like a few days, blew up a ton of stuff, and we were like, got it, enemy conquered. And then a few years later, do you remember uh, what, what a lot of different um, factions in Iraq did, like Al-Qaeda, ISIS? They got together and they started to do a counterinsurgency and guerrilla warfare. They shifted tactics. The problem was the Americans were still fighting a conventional war. Big old airplanes and bombing runs and tanks and these guys were putting IEDs in the road to blow up convoys, and they were sniping leaders in the army and generals, and they were uh, assassinating people and ambushing. And a guy named David Petraeus ended up saving the day. He was a general. He's a four- or five-star general, and, and the president brought him in to go over there and basically get control of the situation, and he wrote this manual called the Counterinsurgency Manual, and it's what we're still using today to, tr to defeat, to successfully defeat the guerrilla warfare tactics over there. Here's the umbrella that I'm going to give you for what, what wisely facing and fighting sexual temptation looks like. You and I are prone to fight a conventional war when we've got to be thinking about this in a guerrilla warfare kind of way, counterinsurgency. We can't be thinking of tanks and bombs and Air Force planes. We've got to be thinking of, like, being camoed up, hiding under a log, sniping stuff and ambushing and preemptive warfare kind of stuff. 
That's how Proverbs says you've got to think about this. You've got to take the battle to the enemy. If you wait till the enemy comes to you, you're toast. That's what he says. I love you sitting on the front row. Get all that feedback there. (laughs) So what does preemptive battle against this stuff look like? Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Why? It's headquarters. If you lose headquarters, you're gone. Your heart, God says to you, is the wellspring of life. It's the headwaters. It's the spring where life bubbles out of you. Guard it. Put a fence around it. It's that important. So what does it look like to guard your heart? Well, in our passage, we get a little bit of it, right before our passage, uh, we get a little taste of that. Um, Proverbs 6.25 says, don't treasure, and the word there means obsess or fixate over or daydream about the beauty of the adulterous woman, the flirtatious man, whatever, the loose person who is really just manipulating you and using you, seducing you, persuading you, has got a hold of your heart. God would tell you, as soon as you feel something grabbing a hold of your heart, particularly if it's eroticized, sexualized, he's saying, uh, you got to cut bait and run in that moment. You can't pay attention to it. John Mark Comer, another name you've heard a lot of this year, he says, you and I become what we give our attention to. You become what you give your attention to. Every time you give attention to a thought, a fantasy, a daydream, you strengthen it. It's like water on a weed. Every time it grows a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, it has more power of you, it grabs over you a little bit more, it ambushes you, it intrudes a little bit further, it makes a home in your mind. That's why this stuff gets so addictive so quickly and has such a hold on our hearts so fast. Now do you know why God is so, uh, so warning of danger? It can move at lightning speed. So he's saying, don't pay attention, which means your physical eyes and mine, they do swivel. You can do that. So if I, if I see something over here that I'm tempted by and I feel in my heart, oh goodness, that's no way to look at a girl. My eyes can also turn this way. And I'm ta- this is what preemptive guerrilla counterinsurgent warfare looks like. As soon as that urge is there, I'm like, hey, I'm free in Jesus to look this way too. What's the scene over here? Oh, oh uh, let's go this way. Or let's just sit on a bench and look at my feet for a while. <laughs> Your mind can be focused on something or you can pick your mind up and move it to something else. This is easier said than done. I get it. Some of you have things going on in your minds, bodily things that makes this very difficult, but you have no hope if you have no control over your thoughts. God has preserved an ability in all of us to do battle in our minds against these things. And if you're waging the battle, there's hope for growth and progress. And if you're not, there's not. Martin Luther said, I can't stop a bird from flying over my head, but I can stop it from building a nest in my hair. In other words, you're not necessarily responsible for the intrusive thoughts or the random images or whatever that come into your mind. You're responsible for what you do with them. Do you let them kind of move in and just stay on the couch and live there day after day and they get coddled and fed and three square meals, paid a lot of attention? 
or do you evict that sucker as fast as you can and say, no, this is my house? That's, that's getting the bird out of your hair. Do you have a battleship mentality when it comes to your thought life or a cruise ship mentality? Are you on guard for enemies, ready to fire, ready to evade? Or are you just along for the ride and you think, well, if I had this thought, I have to be authentic and true to myself to give it attention. Can we just say something about our cultural moment? Has that ever helped anybody? No. It's led a lot of people down a very deep, dark hole. We resist these thoughts. We're clear about who our enemy is and who our friend is. Um, Another thing that God says, what Proverbs would tell us about wisely navigating and facing these things that come at us and come out of us, I would say this. uh, God would say, don't navigate temptation. If you're thinking about, how do I get through this? I think you're thinking about it wrong. God says, run. Our God is not a scaredy cat. He doesn't scare easily. He's not a coward. When this God looks at you with ice in his veins and he says, run, we would be wise to run. And that's what he says. 1 Corinthians 6, 8, Paul says, run from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, flee. Don't stay and try to fight. Don't pray for strength in the moment. Get the heck out of Dodge. That's wisdom. The fool stays to fight because the fool thinks he or she is strong enough to win the battle, even though the entire history of our lives would suggest otherwise. And this is what's going on in the passage. Listen, verse 6 through 10. This is the fool. Look at how the fool thinks he can win the battle. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice and I saw among the simple, that word in Hebrew means kind of the open, the the non-committed, the let's just see how the evening unfolds kind of attitude. Let's see where this goes. I looked and I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men or the naive, a youth who was an idiot. And as he was going down the street near her corner, mistake number one, why are you on that street when you know she lives there and she has a hold on you? Walking along in the direction of her house, he's getting closer and closer. At twilight, when everyone else is going to sleep, as the day was fading, at the dar- as the dark of night set in, and guess what? He got exactly what he should have been able to predict he was going to get. He stepped right into that. And then you go, you go down further, and he, he's gullible. The fool is gullible, too. It believes these silly things, like she says, I want you so bad. You gotta ask yourself, a guy that says that so quickly to you or a girl that says that so quickly to you, isn't it possible they've said that to a lot of other people? If it took a day to say that to you or a night downtown or a week, why would it be any different with anybody else? The fool believes that he really is that special. You've been looking for me? You've been waiting for me? You think I'm hot? Awesome. And Proverbs says, her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into the noose because of the persuasive words. This is the danger and the things that are on the line. Fools think they have what it takes to stand in the moment and to fight and to succeed. 
Right before this, Proverbs 6 says, do you think you can carry an ember, a coal, close to your chest and not be burned? Can I speak for us, myself included? A lot of times I do think I can carry an ember close to my chest and not be burned. Uh, Here's what that sounds like in our moment. These are words I've said. These are questions I've asked. They're questions a lot of us ask. But when we're asking the question, how far is too far, we're already too far. That's a, how close can I carry this burning ember to my chest and it not burn me? Question. It's not a question in alignment with the heart of God, a question that's aware of what sex and sexuality is for. It's a heart that basically wants to know, I, I'm throwing shade on him. I, I don't agree with any of this, but for some legalistic reason, I feel like I've got to follow it. So basically, how many goodies can I get without making him mad? How close can I carry this fire to my chest and not be burned? Uh, we say things like, well, I don't know. One thing led to another, and the next thing you know... That's, that's coming out of this mentality of, um, I've been carrying a fire close to my chest and I'm shocked that it burned me. It shouldn't shock us. We're the ones who decided and decided and decided to pull it closer, pull it closer, pull it closer, and it burned us. And so the wisdom here is God saying, run, get out of that situation. Uh, there's a, a brilliant quote um, by a, an atheist essayist um, uh, Tenehisi Coates, and he, he wrote this. I love this. It captures the ethic of Proverbs. He says, I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising what I would say supernatural willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment. I believe in being absolutely clear with myself about why I'm having a second drink and why I'm not, why I'm going to a party and why I'm not. I believe that the battle is lost at happy hour, not at her hotel or his hotel room. I'm not a good man, but I'm prepared to be an honorable one. Here's the principle. Make the easier choice now so you don't have to make the impossible choice later. Or to put it more realistically, make the hard choice right now so you don't have to make the impossible choice later. If you and I know ourselves, we're going to make the wrong decision in the moment. This very wise man said, the battle started at happy hour when everything was innocent and flirty and fun. By the time I take the elevator up and I'm there, that's not the moment to exercise willpower. I'm already toast. That's wisdom, what he says there. Making the hard decisions now so we don't have to make the impossible decisions later. The odds of winning the battle are not in our favor. Proverbs 7:26. Many a victim has sexual foolishness laid low and all her slain are a mighty thing. Think of the celebrities, think of the pastors, think of the Ravi Zacharias's of the world and everybody else, the celebrities, the athletes, the politicians, this year. Think of the affairs you've heard of, maybe in your family. She has a high death toll of, 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 of victims. So here's where we end, friends. Here's where we end. I hope you found something helpful and usable and practical so far because this is God getting in the trenches with you, understanding your world, understanding how hard it is, how intense the battle is, and he's saying, hey, you don't just have to try harder. Let's talk about it. Here's some things that we can work on to try to resist this. But as I said in my prayer, there's water under the bridge. I mean, you and I aren't like starting after this message tonight. Let's go out there and win the game. We're in the game, and we have been, and I'm a sexual fool. Are you? And I'm broken. 
all kinds of crazy, chaotic things going on inside of me that have hurt me and hurt other people. My question to you as we wrap this up is, do you see God as your greatest hope in your sexual struggles? Do you see him as your ally, as your friend, who has your back and is shooting straight with you? He's not moralizing you, he's not judging you, he's shooting straight with you. Do you see him as your friend telling you things that you can trust? I'll let you read it on your own, but read the first few verses of chapter seven and hear your father invite you, welcome you, beckon you nearer to himself. Say, I'll teach you. We'll start from where you are. Where are you tonight? We'll start there. I'm willing to start there. What happened a year ago in your life, two years ago? I'm aware of it, but why don't we start tonight? How might God see you in light of your sexual foolishness? We already know. We don't have to hypothesize. Friends, if you were here last fall, you were here when we saw Jesus and the woman at the well. She was the woman of Proverbs 7. She was the adulteress. She was the temptress. Could have been a man, too. That town had plenty of men who were that way, too. And what did Jesus do to her? <clears throat> did he sit down and read Proverbs 7 with her in that moment and say, hey, lady, here's a thing or two coming to you. Let me tell you how not to step in it again and again, six husbands in, and the guy you're living with is not your husband. No. He asked her questions. He listened. He heard her story. He went into the dark closet of shame with her. He unlocked it from the inside. He cracked the door, and he walked with her out into freedom, into forgiveness, into innocence, into newness, into a new heart that wanted to be wise, not a fool. He was so gentle with her, and he shot straight with her. He'll do the same with you, Christian. He'll do the same with you if you don't know where you are. You didn't believe half of what I said. He's the living God, and he's a healer for the sexual broken. He's a coach for sexual fools, and he loves his people. Let's pray. Jesus, um, when we think of these powerful urges of romance and love and just attraction, uh, help us to remember that that's a glimmer of what you feel towards your people. You feel compelled, drawn, from the depths of your being to your brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters, your people. Oh, that we would live in that joy. Oh, that your love for us would straighten out our love for others. I pray this in your name. Thank you.